I don't have a bit. Oh my god! No, I we're don't not have doing a this again. I really need to show stop. today. This I, is not. A, this is not a. My my half is not a bit. Please stop doing this. as the bit at the top of the show. <laughs> I feel like this is the natu- the natural capper of it. I've done every possible permutation of the uh, give a little bit. Uh, well, it's bit. at least the third time you've done it. So let's uh, let's end it there, right? Oh, yeah. Comedy is funny when you do it three times. If it's not funny the first time, let's try it twice more. The comedy, the comedy expression. And I think that was four. I think that was four. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, that's why they say always put a hat on a hat. Oh, my God. Please introduce our show. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is I Think You'd Be Into It, the podcast about your problematic faves. I'm your host, Brandon Beck. I'm your other host, Beth Scorzato. And not all our faves are problematic. We no. stopped saying that a long time ago. That's that's true. Yeah, I sometimes just it's it's the it's the vocal muscle memory of it sometimes. But our guest today is uh you know him as the co-founder of Felon to Freeman and uh the founder of voteplan.us is uh Marquise Olison. Marquise, welcome to the show. Hello, hello and welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us. One of the reasons I said it's not problematic is this is one of the less problematic things we're talking about, like a real good thing that people should do and not just yeah, right? let's talk about a trash movie. Yeah, not just some dumb dumb movie or something. Before we get started though, per usual, we're going to do a quick round of things we're in this week into this week uh if you don't have one brandon don't worry i'll start i i shockingly do but you can go first uh well i do because it's something you showed me last night and i already told you i was going to talk about it today on the show um is that uh i'm very i'm into this week this uh video that brandon showed me from an interview that um peter falk did on letterman where he tells a story about how when columbo was airing uh there was a like actual governmental incident in Romania. Is uh, is Colombo? I, I know the answer to this. It's seen all over the world, isn't it, in one form or another? It's very, very popular in Romania. In Romania. <laughs> very big. As a matter of fact, about ten years ago, I got a call from the State Department, and a guy called me up and he says, "We got a problem in Romania. Maybe you can help us." <laughs> but they understand that Colombo was a TV show, right? They did understand yeah. that. They did. So the guy says to me, "Can you meet us in the hotel, Century Plaza, at six o'clock?" I said, "All right, I'll be there." I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. You know? <laughs> so I, I get there. There's two guys from the State Department there. And there's a, a Romanian there. He's from the uh, embassy. Mm-hmm. So they explain to me, they say, Peter, the Romanian government has very severe restrictions on the number of television shows that they can import from the United States. Oh, sure. So, so it's very severe. Cultural but, tariffs. Right. He said, well, here's the problem. Uh, you should understand that the Romanian government bought every Colombo show available. Okay, so what's the problem? He said, the problem is that the people don't believe the government. So what do you want me to do? He said, we got a camera here. Would you 
<clears throat> talk to the people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Would you talk to the people? We got fanatic Romanian here. Hooked <laughs> <laughs> on phonics paying off there. And I gotta tell the people, I gotta tell the people, put down your guns. <laughs> they were they were arming themselves over this? My God! It was that severe. Yes, I guess so. Why would the Romanian <laughs> ambassador come here? No, of Dave. course. Well, I thought maybe it was about your wife's dog. No. I don't know why. <laughs> so we give the speech. A message of peace guns. to the folks of Romania. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's good. Uh, we want to. We want to. Is that a good story? It's an excellent story. <laughs> So he tells this story on Letterman, which really my favorite part of the video is at the very end. He goes, was that a good story? (laughs) And Letterman and the audience all lose it. And they're like, yes, that's a good story. Are you kidding me? That's like the best story possible. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sure Brandon will include it in the show notes now. And that's what I'm into this week. Please go watch that video. It's very charming. It's only like five minutes. Oh, yeah. It's great. I I do love it when celebrities have to do a thing they don't fully understand for reasons that are bigger than them that are just fucking wild. Yeah, he's like, mm-hmm. what the fuck do I know about Romanian government? Why yeah. am I? Why is the State Department calling me? What do I know? I'm an actor. Yeah, well, at one point they they told him that uh, Colombo is the Elvis of Romania, <laughs> which is in, which is insane. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh yeah! Wow! It like yeah. I, when I picture Elvis, I picture hip shaken and hair slicked back, <laughs> not, not, not like bald guy with a yeah. Well, oh, it's Peter. Wait, I'm, Peter am Falk. I mixing up yeah. Columbo and the other guy with Telly Savalas? I think yeah, I think yes. you are. No, Columbo is Peter Falk, just messy, one glass eye, just just very sweet, just kind of bumbling about. Wait, who was Telly Savalas <laughs> playing then? Uh, Telly Savalas was, um, he was on another, uh, cop show. He was Kojak. Ah, yeah, because they were all at about the same time. They both had a hard consonant starting things out. Yeah. Yes, they were at the same time, but no, this was Peter Falk, not, this was uh, Columbo, not Kojak. Kojak was a little earlier than Columbo. This is one of those moments where I say this is where all white people look alike. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's but yeah, Kojak, Kojak was uh was a little bit earlier. They they were mostly in black and white, I think. Yeah, I think you I think you're right. But uh yeah, no, you you are right that all all old TV detectives uh do look the same. They do look alike. They do. Peter Fox just got the the unique thing of that he's got the one glass eye, so he always looks like he's squinting at you. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz he <laughs> lost it to cancer when he was like 3, and so he just always had a glass eye his whole career. Oh, wow. Yep. I guess he's like it, did you watch the show The Wire? Uh, I've seen parts of it, but I haven't watched all of it. There's an actor on there um, who's uh, – his stage name – I don't know his, his like actor name, but on the show he was Omar Little, and he had the scar on his face. He was a dancer. And the scar made him stand out on the show and literally gave him a career because he's been in like uh, a bunch of other uh, movies and TV shows since then. What was that, that HBO show about the gangsters? Michael K. Williams. Yes, there you go. But it was like, sometimes you have that one thing that makes you unique and it makes your, it makes the whole world pop for you. Yep. And for Peter Falk, he's got a, he's got a glass eye and is just very bumbling and charming. And that worked for him for many, 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 many years. <laughs> Paid a lot of rent. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure the fuck did. 
Yeah, so the, the thing I'm into this week is uh, the new album from uh, past thing I've been into multiple times, Corey Wong, and uh, smooth jazz guy Dave Cause called The okay. Golden Hour. the cds yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. um this is uh their their new like collabo album they they had done a couple like collaborations on stuff in the past um and cory wong had done the like dave cause smooth jazz cruise or something like that um and uh if, if you don't know cory wong is uh the guitar player for wolfpeck and uh the only interesting rhythm guitar player um and so uh, he teamed up with Dave Cause to make a uh, a jazz record that, like, it's Corey Wong's band, basically. It's essentially a Corey Wong record, but instead of the lead instrument being a guitar, it's uh, sax. And it's it's real good. It's it's real smooth. Um, it's it's really good, like background or like sort of thinking music. It's it's all it's like a lot of bright colors and. Uh, interesting vibes on it uh but my favorite part so far in the in the lead up to it is he posted a video on his uh or cory wong that is posted a video on his instagram uh basically to say hey pre-order this record and he was like look i i know the people that are following me are much younger than the people that generally follow dave cause um, I need you guys to pre-order this album, and like, look, I know it's on a CD, and that's insane. I get it, but like, I need you guys to do this. Uh, you can you can even just pre-order the CD and then never touch it and just stream it on Spotify or whatever. But like, I it, it's 2021. That's that we have to do that for the old people, and it was uh, very charming and very funny. <laughs> nice, and the jams are good. Yeah, the, oh, the jams are real good. Um, it's essentially the same band that Corey Wong was using for his uh, Corey and the Wong Notes, uh, mm. like, YouTube talk show thing, which was uh, this, like, 10-episode series he dropped uh, last year that was just a, a talk show uh, where the guests were interesting musicians, like, from his band. It was all shot in quarantine. It's, like, half talk show, half, like music sketch show um it was it was real wild and and real fun um and there's actually a, a whole soundtrack album for that on on spotify as well um but yeah the, the record is called the golden hour by dave cause and Corey wong uh so that's the thing i'm into this this week i know it's not as exciting as uh smoking the bandit 2 or uh dom de Luis's egg trick but you know they can't all be zingers <laughs> All right. Uh, Marquise, what are you into this week? I've been really, really into getting some of this good Chicago COVID-free sunshine. 
Nice. Oh my God. Uh, trying to walk and do yoga in the parks. Uh, enjoy some of this beautiful Chicago weather before it goes away and before I go away. <laughs> my my first like this has been my first. I flew home for the pandemic, so uh, it's one of those I've lived in L.A. for since 2002, uh, with only a brief moment where I went to stay in Boston to go and work on a presidential campaign. And in that time, I only came back to Chicago every once in a while. And Chicago is this beautiful, magical place where during the summertime, Every entertainment, every band, every food comes to the town and just shows the greatest self. And last year, I was here for the pandemic, so none of that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so this year, I want to go and I want to see the the taste of Chicago and see the the concerts in the park and uh, and really see what it is that other people brag about and love about this city that I used to call home. Um, which I didn't know for most of my life because of where I grew up. It's it's always nice to go back to somewhere that you were familiar with, uh, with a different context. Like every time I go back to, um, I'm from North Carolina. Every time I go back to Charlotte, it's the same thing of just like, oh, there's actually uh, a lot more uh, interesting, cool shit happening here than I realized when I was younger. And usually, what it happens is is that you become a lot cooler and better wherever you are. And so that you open your eyes to a new perspective, to this old place where you've been. You've become more refined. So jazz becomes a lot easier to take in. Mm-hmm. That's, this is, <laughs> this is an incredibly thirsty equivalent of that, but I were driving the other day. We drove by a Law & Order billboard and I just looked at it and I went, I don't know if Chris Maloney gets hotter as he gets older or as I get older. <laughs> both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I said, both. I think the answer is both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the answer is both. Yep. yep, yep but yep. it's, but it's like, you could just appreciate different things as you get older. Yeah. It's like, who, who's not a, 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 a guy who's six feet tall can fight crime and carry a gun. How's that not sexy? And look great in pink hot pants. There you Nobody go. Nobody saw that online. That photo going around of Maloney online in like bright pink pants and a green tank top, bright green tank oh, yeah. top. <laughs> it was clearly a promo photo for something, but it's been going around the internet lately, and it's very good. When that when that photo of him on set uh, for Law and Order, just like showing off that fully exquisite dumper of his, somebody somebody described it to me as you can see that ass from the front. <laughs> All right, <laughs> and then I went bum bum. Anyway, I don't really know how to make a segue out of that, but uh, yeah. we're, we're yeah. here to talk today about uh, community organizing. Um, Marquise, would you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved? Because you had a really interesting uh, arc. You started here in L.A. doing comedy, right? Yes. Uh, I was actually in L.A. Uh, as a comedian. Uh, it was 2008 when the whole world was paying attention to this little race. Uh, between Barack Obama and Senator Hillary Clinton uh, for the primary for president. I was actually, uh, you know, I, my comedy background is kind of crazy. I started out at Improv Olympic. Uh, then I came out in Iowa West. I ran the jam. I toured with this group, uh, Nation of Improv. I went from there to doing stand up and then improv at the comedy store 
so I'm one of the few people who can say, yeah, I've done improv on black nights at the comedy store and killed. Damn. I didn't even know they did improv at the comedy store. Um, cause when I'm not there, they don't. <laughs> Fair enough. That's why. Hell yeah. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying it cause it's true. Um, <laughs> and it's, it, it's one of those where there aren't a lot of people of color. Now there are, but when I was doing it, a lot of people of color that were trained in the arts of improv and the ones that were, did not come from backgrounds that allowed them to speak with the clarity and quickness in improv uh, in front of audiences and know their references to be able to do it and be effective. Uh, so if you're like talking friends in front of the, and doing friends jokes in front of a crowd at the comedy store on black night, not going to work. Um, so <laughs> be like, let's do them living single scene, son. And then it would roll. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's what I did. I went from there. We went from there to, um, I was doing a podcast taping, um, it was my literally my first podcast in 2008 uh, for Babysitter's Productions. Um, Larry, uh, let's see, um, he just passed. Um, Paul Mooney. Um, Paul Mooney just passed. It was um, He was in the podcast. He was a special guest. Uh, this was 2008. It was literally days after the New Hampshire primary where Barack Obama had just lost. It was a room full of black comedians. And uh, at the time, I was a black Republican. And Paul Mooney said, you know, yeah, Barack Obama's a nice guy, but they'll probably kill him in like the first five minutes of the podcast. I think it was like minute two. And it was one of those moments where we're talking about politics and we're literally talking about it with the man known as Negro Damas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so his words have power and weight. One of the folks on the podcast, um, Paul was, um, uh, was uh, a, was uh, directing the uh, segments from the Chappelle show. So this was this kind of room where everybody was like, he just said this and this is crazy. And I was fighting for the ability of Barack Obama to be president. Not because I believed in his politics or any of that, but because for me to see this man who had worked hard, who, uh, who had, built a great family who did everything right and to say that he can't be president and the only reason why because we think other people will kill him because they're racist to me it woke up something inside of me that said if if he can't live his american dream how can any of us yeah if you want to say that if you're going to say that he can't win because i don't like his policies all right if you say he can't win because you know i think uh that he's immoral which he's not if you can find some other reason to disqualify him as a candidate aside from his blackness, then please do. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't. Um, And it was that moment that kind of awoken the spirit within me to say, you, uh, you know, you have to do something more than just be on a podcast. Um, After the show, my friend, Brad Sanders, who's the head of babysitters productions, he's the the show was his brainchild. He said, Marquise, you got to stop talking about it. Start being about it. Um, and so that's what I did. I was working one of those day jobs. Cause again, hashtag it's LA. Everybody has like six jobs. It's fine. Don't worry about it. One of those jobs was working for, um, donor services group. They're an organization that calls for other organizations to take in donations. So places like Planned Parenthood, ACLU, uh, 
the Heritage Foundation, um, all uh, the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, all use uh, donor services group to make phone calls to their donors to get them to donate more money. Uh, funny enough, at the time, I was sitting next to Anders Holmes, uh, one of the creators of uh, Workaholics. He was like my desk mate. We were working there together. And then he made a show about working in a telemarketing thing that killed. Um, <laughs> he's he's the one he's the one with the hair, right? No, no, he was Durs. Okay, he's he, Durs. He's not not to be like rude about it, but he's the hot one that then went to be in like romantic comedies with people. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's yep. You nailed it. Like, that's Durs. Not to be like literal about it, but like yeah. No, that's 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 a, a pretty solid because I was like, it's, okay, it's, it's it's not the if it's not the hair guy and it's not uh uh fake Jack Black. Uh, it's got to be the it's got to be the third one who I am just blanking on completely. Anders Holmes. Yeah, and he, Anders is brilliant. He's a sweetheart, really, really, really talented writer, funny, funny individual. And we were both on this team in that office where you know everybody else had a script. You're supposed to follow a script when you're calling for donations. Hi, this is blah 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 calling from thing, and we there are some of us that were talented enough some of us that did comedy and some of us that did improv and writers that they would move us to this other side where and they had just started this program because there was enough of us doing it where they taught us about whatever cause or organization we were calling for and then had us you know basically freelance getting large large donations um and Durs was one of those guys um because he was you know, he could have a conversation. Because you guys as the comedians and improvisers had the ability to have conversations with people and engage with people and keep a lot of information in your head. People don't think about that when they talk about like improv training because so many people think improv is just who's line games. Yep. Like mm -hmm. they don't, people who've never done improv, like it really does teach you a lot about how to react other people like in a way that i think is really valuable like really valuable when done right not in the we brought in some improvisers to help with our corporate retreat but like in a really like if you really choose to study it like it really does change the way you interact with people oh yeah it, it really teaches you to like listen in a sort of deeper way uh because everything you're doing is 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 in agreement so like yeah it's 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 so wonderful it's so wonderful i love improv i'm a nerd <laughs> oh yeah and it's, it's one of those things where my improv training and years doing improv is what helped me do everything else. Um, when, when you can walk into any situation and just understand that we're all improvisers, we're all working with our own scripts inside our heads. And if we're all in an unfamiliar situation, then all you have to do is say yes and to the person that's in charge that knows the most and figure out who in there has the most certainty about what you're, they're doing and you follow their lead, then you learn that all you have to do is figure out the parts where other people don't know, find something, get some certainty, and you're essentially leading the scene just like you would be for a partner. You're just starting the initiation. Life is an improv scene. It's one of the beautiful things that I learned from Miles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've never taken a class with Miles, but I've, I've heard nothing but great things that he's he's one of those like improv he like he thinks about improv in a deeper deeper level sort of like uh sort of like will hines does if you know him i don't know will hines uh he's he's a ucb teacher um 
he's he's one of those guys that like you can really tell he is he he's into improv for the love of the game you know mm-hmm. like he's written multiple books about it and and he's it feels like he's always trying to get at something a little a little deeper and a little more abstract about this really kind of strange ephemeral art form slash like mindset which the saying that sounds a little culty but i mean however it's true like the the thing is what i learned in all of my vocation is that they use uh, like when you read books about trauma therapy and you you see some of the exercises that they use in trauma therapy and i'm like well that's just an improv game oh that's all improv like all of improv is just a like they use the same techniques. All you're doing is learning to access your subconscious. The uh, an improv school, their job is to access your subconscious, teach you a bunch of new communication tools to guide the conversations that you have with other students who know those same rules and give you a certain rubric that you can walk out within the world and have conversations with. Um, it, you're learning how to write and to do a show and to tap into your subconscious and your unconscious mind consciously. If you're doing it right, um, you're not telling jokes. You're just sharing a space on the stage where you're co-creating reality in the same space with a bunch of other people who are conscious that they're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's like we watched a TJ and Dave set where they just really went to the farmer's market and like God, it was yeah. fascinating. <laughs> it was fascinating. Oh yeah. I, I saw them do one um like this is one of those things when that before I got started. I saw them back in Chicago um when I was first getting started and they did a scene where they sat on a train for like an hour. They just sat there and had a very small but powerful impactful conversation on this train. And it was just like two guys getting to know each other who had built worlds within themselves and they were meeting for that hour on the train. And we were just witnessing this moment being built by two interesting people that were there together that if there were train cars and everything else, this would have been that, but like the highest version of it. Yeah. Those, those two guys, they're they're like the fucking like Zen masters of, of improv they 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 connect on such a deep level that it's it's stunning to watch um there was a documentary about them uh i forget what it was called but it was directed by uh the dude who played ray on girls um and the first like essentially the cold open of it uh because the majority of the documentary is just one of their sets that that was filmed and as far as TJ and Dave sets go, it's fine. But the the most fascinating part is the is they recorded the two of them just sort of going about their day before the show, and it's just them like kind of like walking around. Uh, I think it was Chicago, uh, just like talking and like observing people, and like you know rather than doing like zip zap zop or whatever. It's just the two of them, like, really, like, getting into each other's brains for a couple hours and then going on stage and 
I think that's partly why it feels so effortless because it feels like they've been doing it all along and will keep doing it after they've been on stage. We're just seeing a chunk of it, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like the, the the other beauty of them is I've had the uh, the pleasure of watching them with other folks. And there's a magic that they have together that is just, it's synergy. However, they're great everywhere they go and they make every person that performs with them better. Um, it's, it's this power of they have slowed their actions down enough that their brains are working at hyper speed at like improv, you know, speed, but they don't speak in that fashion. They're disciplined enough that they can go through 10 options while you're still cycling through trying to find the line. And they're just trying to find the most real moment for what this human being they're embodying right now is. Oh, absolutely. So like related to that, you use that to help raise money. <laughs> Getting back to our, our story here. Because this very easily could have become the TJ and Dave episode. Oh, yeah. We got sidetracked talking about improv, which we can do, which happens on this show. (laughs) Going back to community organizing. So uh, what happened was I I used um, I used that. That going and doing that, I raised money and it was oddly enough, I was at donor services group and there they had both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton um, calls you can make. So literally in 2008 was the first year that everybody had heard about small dollar donations, right? Um, And the way that worked is that the campaigns were generating funds and then they were getting, you know, electronic donations, which again, couldn't exist before technology didn't, wasn't here before that. Uh, iPhone is only, was only invented in 2007. So it's like, all this was new. All of the digital marrying, digital content creation, all of it new. Um, so when this place where we're all making our phone calls, um, uh, they allowed, you know, the people that were making phone calls for Hillary Clinton lobbied to say they want to be able to choose not to make calls for Barack Obama. And these were like mostly... Um, I'll just say it. These were mostly the older white women that were in Hillary Clinton's corner. These folks would still make phone calls for like the Heritage Foundation, the most conservative organization, but they didn't want to make phone calls for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Once the, yeah, once the right. phone, yeah, <laughs> well, there's like our checks are important, but we want to make sure Hillary Clinton gets in. That's more important than Barack Obama. I'm like, all right, I got it. And once they gave the green light, once the, the organization said, all right, we'll let you guys pick. And I was like, I have now decided that I'm going to help Barack Obama win. So if that's the rules you're going to play, then I just lobbied all the folks who are making phone calls to not make phone calls for Hillary Clinton. So by the end of it, I was in my little world that I had choking off donations to Hillary Clinton and increasing them with the little piece of world that I could own. And that's what community organizing is, is finding out what is the good you can do for the ultimate goal that you can have and how can you put that into action in this moment and so going from there i made a viral video and this was again 2008 so cell phones weren't huge 600,000 views back in 2008 was a smash um with rusty cundiff who was on that podcast with me 
uh, who he did uh, Stop Obama Time. Then I went to uh, a Camp Obama at L.A. Trade Tech, where for the first time in my life, I told my life story. Because they taught us at this camp, you thought I thought you know they were going to teach us how to make some phone calls, maybe knock on some doors and stuff like that at this camp, Obama. But what they taught us was the power of marrying your story to a cause. And when you learn how to do that, and for me, I was the perfect weapon because I had been an entertainer walking in. All they did was teach me a format. I'd been an, like literally in Illinois, I'm an, a, a Scotty award-winning storyteller, um, you know, making up stories. But this was the first time I had ever told my own and not a dry eye. I was in the house. Everybody was broken. Uh, literally one of the organizers there that was there, the training eventually became council member Mike Bonnet. Like this was a room of folks that helped change the, the city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also to change the world. Mm -hmm. Like you're getting to work on a presidential campaign means that your fingerprints are on the microphone that speaks to the universe. And so if you in some way get to bend the arc of the moral universe by helping this one person who has the ability to, with a speech, to change policy, to change lives, to change the way that people see the world. Lincoln freed the slaves with a speech, right? Backed by action, but with a speech. Martin Luther King wrote the next 60 years of existence with a speech. And so to be able to play in that game of community organizing, to, to be able to feel within that realm of the presidential campaign, you start to see how that acts in your life. And you see how the presidency, all the little decisions that they make, how it fits into the fabric of your life. You don't feel like the insignificant little me that we feel on this planet anymore. You have a connection to something far, far bigger. And if a, a good community organizer is helping everyone to see that connection, yeah, absolutely. So how so you worked with the campaign? Uh did you work all the way through the election? Yes, I was in LA. So we built LA was this thing. They had a plan. Yeah, we were both on the other side of the country still during this. So I don't really know what the climate was here. <laughs> oh, well, well, so let's flash back to 2008. Like we all think we think of this world now and it's like Barack Obama's a president. Of course, Barack Obama was president. He should have been. It was easy. We go back to 2008 and we understand like, no, uh, no, he was he was an underdog. I was a journalism student in 2008. So like this was my world tracking this election. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, he was not he was he was not doing great at the beginning. People did not want him. And it was it was this to see that headwinds and to see like in him winning the presidency, how it changed the views that people have of our country and of ourselves. His presidency and um, Michelle Obama's first ladyship just single-handedly gave black people a whole different self-esteem boost. It said instantly that you can aspire to the highest office in the land 
and you there's somebody that looks like you with a name that you ain't even got that got there and now you have an opportunity to actually learn from the person that did it whereas before he had to do it and there was nobody like him in history there's no blueprint for barack obama none but he lays down a blueprint for everyone else so to go from there in the campaign we were in la um la of course so obama but the obama campaign said all right we know la california we got this y'all ain't gonna call california y'all job is to win nevada you're gonna adopt california they, Nevada was lost by Kerry 48 to 52 uh, uh, at, uh, I think he was at 48. So we needed to gain two uh, and get two. I think it was, we went, we flipped the state from 48 to 52 from Kerry to Obama. But it was because millions of people in California made calls and knocked on doors in Nevada. I led Camp Obama trainings literally Weeks after I first learned how to tell my story and attended my first ever Camp Obama, I was assembling and leading my own Camp Obama trainings with hundreds of people. Uh, I set up phone banks uh, and I helped do the volunteer operation in South L.A. and East L.A. Um, my experience in improv and events in comedy, I did fundraisers at the Comedy Store. I did a fundraiser at Akasha down in Culver City with... Uh, the writer of Man in the Mirror, Saida Garrett, and uh, at the time, city councilman, uh, 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 who's the mayor? Uh, why am I losing his name? Eric Garcetti. I was going to say the current mayor, Eric Garcetti. Uh, current yeah. mayor, yeah. Back then, you know, you know, OG, EG. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know him like that. But it, it, it was back in those days, nobody had a plan because none of this stuff existed. They didn't have grassroots fundraisers. But I had done other fundraisers, so I just used what I knew. And we would make up – the campaign was like none of this stuff that we're – everything we're doing is made up. So if you got a good idea and a way to execute it, we'll throw you some people and some press or whatever you need to make it happen. And that's – you know, we had one of the nation's largest phone banks ever – um, in the basement of the Century Plaza Hotel, teeming with stars. Like I, I ended up, I started the day with with Donald Sutherland in my organizer meeting, getting instructions on how to make phone calls. And I ended up partying the night away after we had called and elected this man with Ryan Philippi. Um, it was unreal. Damn. Did you party with Donald Sutherland too? Because that seems like that would be rad. No, it would have been rad. Like, look. Donald Sutherland is one it was so the day before the election Donald Sutherland and this is like Donald Sutherland in his 70s or 80s um comes down and he can't vote because he's Canadian he's like you know I want to help out and he's still I would like to make some phone calls and I'm like this is you know I'm still I'm 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 starstruck a little but I've been in LA so I know it's like I used to I used to be the house manager at iOS. Angela Kinsey from The Office was my boss. So I, I've been around celebrities, but I'm like, this is the dude that, I, you know, this is Donald Sutherland. Oh, yeah. This is fucking OG Hawkeye. Yeah. Like, look, I'm sitting here talking to Jack Bauer's dad. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, Jack Bauer's dad is sitting in front of me saying, help me save the world. Um, so he was kind and amazing. We set him up. 
We gave him a script and he literally he went, took one or two breaks to get some tea and to use the restroom. But that man sat there and picked up that phone and dialed. Nobody knew who he was. He just looked like this old, you know, old white guy hunched over a phone. You know, we set him up. You know, we made sure that there was a, a couple of our key volunteers that were like kind of next to him that were just still making phone calls and doing to make sure nobody would take him off of. But this man just sat up and made calls for like eight hours, came back next day, put in seven hours. He said he came in at like five in the morning. Damn, he's 85 now. So, yeah. And he like he did it and, and didn't put up a fuss. Was there were some folks that came in and, you know, all they did was come in, take a lot of photos with folks, which was cool because it keeps the morale up and people are going to take those mementos home. Um, and this was back again, 2008, before everybody had a camera phone. Um, so it was it wasn't as much of a madhouse, which is why I don't have as many of the cool photos as I should from that run. Mm. Um, but in that day, and this is what community organizing taught me, elections are a moment where no one knows anything. And but everybody has the same stakes. And so you have folks that were in our doors that were CEOs of companies and heads of of agencies and wives of heads of studios that were taking orders from little old me. Because I just knew a little bit more about this world than they know about this world that I'm trying to get into. And it was this beautiful melting pot because it, it you learn that in this world, your, your politics melts into everything and it brings out, because there's no pay and it's free, it brings out the best people or the most attention-seeking people, those two things. But usually people that really want to make a difference in the world. And a presidential election where we say, here, you can make some phone calls, elect this first black dude ever, everybody showed up. After the election, did you continue working with the organization or is that when you went on to find uh, find your own place here well it was so <laughs> and one of those crazy twists of fates um president obama came back to la for a fundraiser um the next year and i think it was at like the beverly wilshire hotel um it was exciting he was all there uh was it the dude had, had, had the uh, Quinto, Zachary Quinto was there. He gave the live long and prosper because Star Trek had just dropped. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the folks from the campaign, uh, Alita Garcia, who's now uh, head of this organization, Inclusive, that does uh, hiring for uh, who who specializes in diverse hiring. She was in charge. She was one of the leaders of the uh, of the Latino Caravana, where they, we had folks from L.A., uh, that were Latino and Spanish speaking, um, riding in vans and buses to go and knock doors in Nevada to speak Spanish to get the vote out. Um, and she introduced me to this um, uh, very striking um, young lady who was very well put together, um, who was short and was determined, and she was going to be running for attorney general. Um, and I shook this lady's hand and she said, This is Kamala Harris. She's amazing. She's going to be running for attorney general um, and you should work on her campaign, Marquise. I said, I am honored and flattered. Um, you sound amazing. And if Alita loves you, then that means you are. But I'm going back to comedy. I turned down the uh, 
the now current vice president of the United States of America <laughs> to go to tell jokes. At the time, you didn't know. And it's a big thing to you took a really big step to put what you were doing kind of to the side to be a part of this very important thing. And I'm sure it was a big decision to then make of what do I keep doing this or go back to my life that is safe and what I know. Oh yeah. And it was, it's like I had whole new toys because like I said, coming out of the election, you go into the election, I'm Marquise, I'm producing, but I'm still, I'm LA. So I'm managing an apartment building. I'm eating ramen noodles. I'm literally uh, supporting myself, writing uh, reviews for adult websites and, uh, and doing other Whatever it takes to to whatever writing assignment that I can scribble some words down and somebody scribbles a check down. Those two things. I mean, if you got any good recommendations for uh, adult websites, uh, <laughs> hit my DMs after the all, show. All the you know, all the passwords have changed. Like that was one uh, of those things where, again, get paid to do what you. My one of my philosophies in life is get paid to do what you would pay to do. Most guys <laughs> pay a lot of money to go and see all the adult websites. I got paid to get the passwords to look at all the adult websites and then write reviews about it. It was like one of those things where it was like, all right, I've done enough. I don't need to see any more adult films because I've seen them all. And and the only side of that, it's almost like when you work to the Jerry Springer show and you see the sound guy and you look at him and he puts the microphone on the very attractive people. And then you also remember he also puts the microphone on the very unattractive people. Yeah, I mean, that's like I work in comics and people are just like, oh, my God. And I'm like, I don't have let me let me tell you the best way to ruin comics is work in comics. Mm-hmm. Too, I don't give a shit what Superman's doing, y'all. I've worked at DC. It's fine. <laughs> like It's like some dude came up, made that shit up and somebody else drew it. That's what yeah. happened. It's like the magic happened a long time ago where somebody lived in a world. There wasn't a Superman and they had to figure out a way to say you know, if we have a super suit and we make this dude fly and we do it on a piece of paper, everybody's going to love this. That sounds weird. What is a human being flying without a bird? Yeah, don't worry about it. Physics. I'm going to write it out. It's called Superman. Yep. That's the magic. Everything else is just how do we copy the magic to keep the money train going? Pretty much. But yeah, it's also, I mean, just the way you interact with, the reason I thought about it being with comics is because, like, I also work with a publisher that we publish adult comics. And people are like, oh my god, you get to work on porn? And I'm like, dude, I'm not even looking at the penises. I'm trying to make sure that the margin on the page is laid out correctly. Like, I am so divorced from the content here because of the way I'm interacting with it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care, man. I'm just doing a job. Yeah, I've been on enough porn sets where that's how it is there, too. It's like, you, a friend of mine um, wanted to be a makeup artist and I helped her go from, you know, working as an accountant to becoming a makeup artist. And then once you do that, the easy way to start paying your rent is doing makeup on porn. I work as a PA on porns. I make great money. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's, it's always shooting uh, and it ain't going away because people like seeing other naked people. And they're one of the few uh, production companies that actually are respectful of their talent and their crew yeah. and pay us a good rate and don't overwork us. And safety is really important. Because mm-hmm. this is one of those places where everybody knows the talent runs things in this industry, but the talent don't know that they run things in that industry. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's like, we can't make a movie if they're not there. They just don't know we can't make a movie if they're not there. Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> but it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I've been in a viral porn too. It's crazy. My life is nuts. Um, <laughs> not as in that, like I was background because again, hashtag my life is nuts. I've been background in porn too. It's fine in non-sex scenes. I'm like in the back of like a book reading, like because <laughs> there are all the like weird like non-sex scenes that they just need extras for. That's how I met them, and then I was like, I'm just gonna shoot my shot. I'm a great PA, and you pay really well. Here we are. It was like working on, I'll say, being a student of human behavior because that's what I've been a comedian my whole life. Like I, I used to do imp- impressions of uh, of people at church. Uh, in high school, I competed in original comedy and humorous duet acting and original comedy. Uh, I won awards for comedy before I stepped on anybody's improv stage. Um, and when you pay attention to the little tiny move, it's like what Dave and TJ does. Why their show is so brilliant? Because they're painting a picture of a person. Oh, yeah. With every person they inhabit. And when you get to the minutia of humanity about like how our anxiety manifests itself physically or um, the word choices and tropes that people use and repeat over and over itself that somehow over a lifetime become their destiny. When you can start understanding how that builds into a human being and builds into a whole system, you can step in and change everything because most people are blind to themselves for how they stand how they move how they walk except for actors that one little field where you have to pay attention to everything you do because everyone's paying attention to everything you do i guess actors athletes entertainers of all those ilk community organizers are that same thing politicians are that same thing you're saying a set of words that are a script in order to elicit a response from the audience and your ability to carry your persona into those words is what gives it the authenticity to help them take that action. And so a lot of the act, a lot of the politicians in LA come from comedy and in have done some improv classes. Yeah. Before we wrap up, we should talk about your, your two uh, organizations. <laughs> yeah. We, I was going to say, we still, we're still halfway through the story, babe. Yeah. Fair enough. Oh my God! I just thought about this. We're forty nine. This is like a therapy <laughs> session. Here. We're forty nine minutes. Mind. In. Oh no, yeah, this, dude, this is we've great. done like two and a half hour episodes. We don't care. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> I, I, I just like. Is this interesting? I want to make sure that what we're saying is that a good story. Yes, is that a good story? <laughs> yeah. Was that a good yeah. story? Let me let me ask you something, Mister Letterman. Is that is that, is that a good story? Uh, yes, yes, yes. All right. Yes, so you were gonna go back to comedy. I was gonna go back to comedy. And you got called by the Romanian ambassador. Yeah, pretty much. I said, what we want to do is to make sure. Um, I I guess I probably should do. uh, No, it's not a tumor. California (laughs) is a state we should all live in. It is the greatest state in the union. I am not a tumor. I am a governor. I am the governor. And like, look, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. That man is, is amazing. Uh, to go from where he did to achieve the things he's done in his lifetime, I make fun, but uh, good God. Uh, that man has done, shot the entire moon. I'm not going to resummarize it because I think uh, there's a, a couple of comedians who've done it better. I think like Joe Rogan did a whole bit on Arnold Schwarzenegger, but man, 
he may have different politics for me, but uh, the way that he has used his platform to build community is admirable. Uh, and the things that he's doing outside of the entertainment space to actually bring about world peace and uh, a world understanding uh, is something I never thought I'd hear about from the governor or the governor or the terminator, but that's what he's doing. Yeah. And a part of that in this day and age is that he's German and Germans do not play when it comes to making jokes or reviving the Nazi party. They are not fucking here for it. The shit that people get away with here in the U.S. and say it's free speech, you would be fucking arrested for in Germany and you should be arrested for here. He doesn't he doesn't play. <laughs> you know, the, the good thing is, as a country, I think that we will get to a better place um, right now. We're off kilter because yeah. it, it's like for four years we let Bane run Gotham City. Yeah, basically. And much. now we've got Alfred in the bat suit trying to clean shit up. Um, and we're <laughs> it's like Batman's like, look, I I tried to tell you guys, uh, I, I had I had Batgirl uh lined up and <laughs> set and ready to go, but you 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 guys went with uh you know Bane and 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 now uh you you you're paying the consequences. Yeah, now we're fucked. Because yeah, it's like you can't you can't get away from your phone because the guy that's controlling the butter, the button that could blow up the world also is sending out tweet messages. And one day he might mix it up. Like, yep. on. Which of these secret codes, uh, you know what? I was going to send a message to North Korea, but let's go send a message to North Korea. Protect your city, little rocket man. <laughs> it's funny. The, the, the world that I've gotten into, I got to interview a guy, uh, Matt Wiggler on my vote plan podcast. Uh, who was a uh, he was a Pete Buttigieg um, national security advisor. He's like 22 or 23. So he's Pete's age. Ma yeah, Pete's age. Matt was actually an intern for um, the UN while Trump was president under Nikki Haley. And he got to see firsthand how close we as a country got to nuclear disaster. And he's like, no, people don't. If people knew where we were and I was an intern and I got to see it, if people actually, the general public knew how close we got to a war with North Korea, they would lose their shit. And it's one of those things where we've become we got so inured watching all the craziness on TV that we forgot that there's actual real life consequences going on. And it's fun to watch the president be entertaining and to say a lot of things that are wild and loose and reckless. But they distract you with that while the right hand who doesn't, who actually has power and knows that he'll never fucking notice because he doesn't know what he's doing. It's causing trouble. Well, and it's, it's like, this is a thing. He's that he's that right hand. He's also that. He just doesn't know what he's doing. He just knows that he's doing it. <laughs> he's just pulling. Yeah, he's pulling wires the, uh, or was. But the, the hard part is, is that, you know, he got close. He was in there. He he got of, of all this. There's nine billion people on the planet Earth. There's only one president of the United States of America, and he got it. Somehow we let the king of monkeys get in charge of the show. That's our fault. 
I heard years ago, I heard somebody say that like in any presidential election or, or big or big election in general, but it was uh, specifically about presidential was uh, America's always going to vote for the candidate who of the two is Bugs Bunny. And once I real once I realized that I was like, oh God, Trump's gonna win, isn't he? I think that I would say that America's gonna vote for the president that most resembles their like their internal side. Mm-hmm. The the reason why Barack Obama became president is because Everybody wanted to finally feel good about our country. And then to seal the deal was a moment where our financial future was at risk. And when it came to a point of, do we want to go with the guy whose expertise is that, yes, he's been a senator and a House member, but he was just a a war veteran. Another guy whose expertise was, well, he's a constitutional law scholar who also worked for a financial firm, who also worked as a community organizer, who who helped people who didn't have jobs get jobs uh, on the south side of Chicago. The country needed, even though they didn't know that they were voting for those things in Barack Obama, that's what they needed. They also needed somebody that was going to carry around a BlackBerry and that would be okay upgrading to an iPhone once it got secure. <laughs> um, because this is where you're going to be writing public policy for how people actually interact. And having the person that's writing that public policy not interact on the platforms that people are interacting on uh, would be detrimental. Like the fact that so many lawmakers don't know how to properly use a smartphone or the power of a smartphone, yet they're writing all the rules for them um, is astounding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a tell of like – I look at community organizing as one of those things where we take it for granted. We look at at Barack Obama and say he was a community organizer, but in reality, everyone is a community organizer. A mom is organizing the community of her family. The founding fathers were organizing the documents to make the community called America. They set a, a community is just setting aside a group of people, a set of rules, a way to communicate, um, and how decisions are are made, and then a function and output that you're trying to get to. Whether you're Jesus Christ and trying to get your 12 guys to build a church and then take that church and change the world. If you're Buddha and you're walking around the uh, mountains of, of, of India and you're recruiting folks to your way of seeing and way of being and seeing the world. Uh, or if you're, uh, if you're Muhammad or if you're Dr. King and need to get uh, 250,000 people to show up in Washington, D.C. to give you a backdrop for you to uncork your dream. That's what you do is you build that visual, you build that world, and then you create it for everybody else to inhabit. That's a great way of looking at it. So obviously you didn't go back into comedy. Mm, Well, I did actually. Like it was one of those where I never, I I only like I dipped back in, um, but they kept pulling me back in. So I was going back into comedy. I was like at around this time I did this, uh, I did the uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live where I was, I did the, I got to do the dozens on Jimmy Kimmel Live for Mother's Day. Nice. What, what are, what are, what are the dozens? The dozens are like your mama jokes. Oh, sure. So 
so I was uh I got cast. Um, it was like one of those things. It's almost like a, a scene out of the secret. I used to do improv with this troupe over at the studio Bang Improv that's no longer there. That was owned by Peter and Eliza Murrieta. Um, Bang Improv, we we made this opening up called Yo Mama, where we would just we would get a suggestion from the audience and we would say a Yo Mama joke to whatever it was, and then we would just keep going and riffing off of that, and that was our opening. So everybody had to learn how to just make up your mama jokes off of whatever. If somebody said, um, I don't know, just give me a word. Banjo. Your mama so banjo, everybody gets to pluck her strings. Uh, <laughs> your mama so banjo, only people know her are some folks from the South. Your mama so, it's just like, and then somebody else would go South. Your mama so Southern, and then we just keep riffing off of that, and then we go three scenes game, three scenes game, three scenes game. Um, but you get so good at just making your mama jokes out of whatever somebody says and you do it enough, people remember it. So one day the casting director who was used to be a student at IO with me and was an intern uh, called me and said, hey, we got this part. I think you're perfect for it. And it was just me doing positive your mama jokes against Jordan Peele uh, on the streets and then, you know, introduced by Jimmy Kimmel. It was great. I even got to do uh, I improv the closing line. It was like killer. I was like, what? Bam. Achievement unlocked. Un- I like. I got to improv on Jimmy Kimmel Live as a gift for Mother's Day for my grandmother and mother. That's amazing. And like doing it, doing what I had been doing. Like if you do something enough, even though it, it you do something that you love enough, the universe will respond and give you the rest. I didn't ask to be on Jimmy Kimmel. I wanted to be on SNL. I wanted to be where I could share some positivity and light on whatever stage. I didn't get the target that I set out for, but that wasn't what was intended for me. I got really close. And like, of the, again, billions of people on the planet, only a smaller handful are going to be able to say that, hey, were you on a national television show? Did you get to improvise on a national television show? I'm like, yeah, I did. How many, how many, how many people trained for years in improv for years and years and never got on TV? Pretty much all but you and the cast of Whose Line. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you, Greg Proops, and Heather Ann Campbell. Oh, no, no, no. There's a lot more improvisers on TV (laughs) than me, but you know. Yeah, there you go. So, so you were doing good with the comedy, but you kept getting sucked back in. Oh, yeah. Dude. So they said, all right, hey, we're trying to pass healthcare reform. And. You know, some Obama folks called me in. I go and I run Camp Obama's to teach people about health care. Um, and then I was writing for Lonnie Love um, before she would go on Chelsea Lately. And mm-hmm. I was doing, again, doing comedy and everything else. And they said, OK, Marquise, we want you to be the volunteer, co- the state volunteer coordinator for the DNC. We're doing this thing that we've never done before where we're going to coordinate all the Democratic campaigns. We need somebody to run the volunteer operations. So I ran the entire volunteer operations for the D like I was a volunteer coordinator for the DNC in California for this whole new thing. It was uh, Senator Barbara Boxer was on the card. So was the governor's race. Uh, That was the one that Jerry Brown won. Um, I think that was the same year that, or soon after that Karen Bass went from being the speaker of the assembly to running for the actual house. I, I built a Camp Obama for her or a Camp Karen Bass and did the story section for her. Um, I did. It was like I had to leave behind 
all the comedy stuff to go and do the work in 2010. But it was like, I got to go and give a speech in front of 37,500 people, Jamie Foxx and Barack Obama. Damn. My improv and comedy is what got me ready to do that. I got to give a speech at the Wilshire Ebell with uh, Michelle Obama, Jill Biden, uh, Babyface as the folks that were on the marquee with me and, and, uh, and Senator Barbara Boxer. Um, I was the only guy besides Babyface speaking on that program. It was, it was unreal. Uh, I got thanked from the stage by Michelle Obama to have that amazing woman to say my name in front of a thousand people. Wow. Cascading out to the universe. Just unreal. Um, it's, it was, it was still after that, I went back and did one more shot uh, into not comedy um, or into making it where I was writing scripts. I wrote a script called um, Candidate Green and I was trying to get that done. And I was working for Boingo Wireless, which was the company that now, Ooh. yeah. They used to do the airport Wi-Fi. Oh, they still do the airport Wi-Fi. But it's not like, oh, not every airport has it branded that way anymore. Sometimes they try to be like, we're LAX Wi-Fi. And I'm like, you did not install these routers, LAX. They barely work. Fuck you. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and, and that's what it is. It's like they don't you don't see their name anymore, but they're still there. Mm -hmm. They're still collecting the money. For a while, that was all very branded by them. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's what, like, they were like, they figured out how do we sell it? We just want to get the money. And so they didn't need the branding anymore. They were like, mm, no, let's go in. But it was, it was beautiful seeing that piece of, it was like, I was seeing technology seep into our lives and I was watching it from like the front row. I saw it working in the political campaigns and then the things we were doing in politics go into regular life. Um, and how, the, the ability to have regular people tell their stories is what we're seeing right now on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere else. But that, that all began in that Friendster, MySpace, Obama land, where that's where people learn to use that utility to tell their stories, to be able to build community. Um, it was This was an exciting time where all this stuff was new. The smartphone was new. That in the pocket of your hand, you could walk around with a magic box that lets you uh, carry around all the songs of the universe. I mean, yeah, that's like I mean, I I often joke like you have a computer in your pocket. Like, that, think about how insane that is. That at yeah. any time you can just look something up. You have the world in your pocket at all times. It's insane. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. insane. And what most people do with the world in their pocket is look at cat videos. It's like, come on, people. I mean, those cats are pretty good, though. Yeah, I do just use it mostly for looking at memes. But you know what? Sometimes I use it for work. Yeah. Every once – and that's – you know, the work that I'm doing now, Felina Freeman, um, I started an organization during the pandemic to help formerly incarcerated individuals walk the path from prison to prosperity. I had my own incident where I was choked, tased, and beaten by the L.A. County sheriffs. Uh, I was nearly killed, held in a, a jail cell, naked and cold for hours and hours. They lied and told my family I was in a bed sleeping while I was laying on cold concrete. Um, I know what it's like to be a black man to grow up poor from the west side of Chicago, um, to have 
nothing to the only books in the house were an incomplete set of encyclopedias. For me, the things that I've gotten to do in my life uh, to work on the Obama campaign, to do comedy with some of the most brilliant and bright, brightest people on the planet. Uh, I got to co-write a script a long time ago with Mike Coleman, one of my heroes, um, to work for Airbnb, nextdoor.com, to help Deval Patrick run for president, and to now help a bunch of men and women go from the lowest position that our society has for people, which are uh, what they call convicts or formerly incarcerated men and women, and to teach them and to understand their backgrounds. Because the truth is, their lives aren't much different than mine. No, we're terrible. We're terrible with with formerly incarcerated people, though. I mean, the the way just from the base level of that it is standard policy to disenfranchise people that have been incarcerated like that doesn't give them the right to have a a vote you have literally legislated against their lives and they don't get to vote on it like what the fuck Mm -hmm. Uh, we're terrible we're terrible with we're terrible i have a lot of thoughts about this too my mom was a civics teacher so i grew up (laughs) i went to school for journalism and like this is like a lot of shit that i have just like spent a lot of time being angry about well, this is one of those things where part of the reason why I podcasting has changed my life. That first podcast that I did with Paul Mooney launched me into community organizing. And in doing that work where I'm teaching a bunch of folks how to start a podcast, to do presentations with their families, but then it's also job training. I'm teaching formerly incarcerated individuals how to you know, start a Zoom, how to use Zoom, how to use Zoom etiquette, how to uh, how to actually do a job interview over Zoom, how to tell their own personal story and how to recontextualize the lives that they've lived. Like uh, one of my co-founders, Anthony Harris, used to rob drug dealers Um, and he like had to restart his life. This was a man that when he went to jail, he read all the books on how you're supposed to get your life together. He read all the business books because, you know, when he was a kid, he was molested as a kid. His mother was a drug addict. Um, He was abused as a kid. The only people that embraced him were the Crips. And, you know, people like to point out, well, they didn't really like him, but like, you know what? He was a kid. He was 11, 12 years old. And the only people that hugged him were blue bandanas. And if no one else in his family told him you were great and that you were loved and appreciated, and the men that did were guns, he's going to go to the folks that give him that any of us would want that same love and appreciation that any human being deserves. And so he learned their ways instead of learning the proper ways to make money, to provide for yourself in society. When he went inside and he tried to better himself and he read business books, got a business certificate, wrote a business plan, went to get loans or went to get employed, and everybody said, oh, no, son, you got a felony. You're good. You should go and go do this other thing. He was like, well, I have no choice because the bills are coming. The scarlet letter's here. So he went back to selling drugs. But instead, he sold them, he sold them to wealthy people in New Hampshire. Um, but he also implied all of the business teaching. So he went from during the day, he would pretend to be homeless and sell his drugs and avoid detection 
being small. And then at night he would change his clothes and then go live in his three-story lake house and have his pontoon party boats and all this other stuff and live a whole different life because he had to create that for himself. But he saw the emptiness in it. He would, you know, kayak around, or kayak around this lake crying because he was wealthy that all these things that he wanted as this childhood, he had every single thing he wanted except for friends and family. And so he turned himself around, you know, the, the way the world works is you get kicked again and he went in jail again and he had to find his way back. His queen, uh, Shaquanda Allen, who was just named the young entrepreneur of the year last year by an organization in New Hampshire, um, helped him tell his story, helped him find his light. Um, he began while at a really difficult time in their life to make some extra money. He answered an ad online and became a reporter for Google news and Stringer news initiative. That's why I love these new kinds of applications for allowing people to be useful. Um, allowing people like to become a reporter just by here, bring your camera, just, yeah, just show up. I had mentioned that like, oh, in 2008, I was a journalism student. And even at that point, talking about like changing technology and how much it's changed over the past decade, even, you know, I, I graduated in 2009 and there was like, there was one very specifically memorable day where our professor showed up. We had an 8 a.m. thing. She showed up and we would have to show up at 8 a.m. every Monday and we would come in and then she would come in and then just have like a fucking like mental breakdown about how journalism was going away and with the internet anybody can be a journalist and what are any of us even doing here and our careers don't matter anymore and she would have like a 20 minute panic attack in front of us and then send us all home every week every week mm -hmm. <laughs> she would come in and be like i don't know why any of you are getting journalism degrees because the internet's changing everything and every and all of a sudden our journal our entire career is going to be obsolete and like People were freaking out about the possibility this was a white lady, and I don't know anything about her background, but she is the kind of person that had been at the reins of the of the gates of who does and does not get to be a journalist forever, and all of a sudden, the internet was changing that, and people could tell their own stories, and you didn't have to have a degree from Columbia, you know, which is not where I went. That's just where a very good journalism school is, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Like, and it has, it's absolutely revolutionized. The internet has absolutely re revolutionized who gets to tell their own story. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's revolutionizing who gets to work like, and how a person can execute and live their dreams. Like we, we're, we're now getting to the place where a lot of people are living with old mental paradigms and old mental technology there's more opportunity in this world for any and all of us. Yes, there's more obstacles like for some of us. However, my guys that we're, we're learning, especially at Felon the Freeman, they're quickly learning that your attitude is your altitude. If you walk in the door and you are joyful and you have a mission and purpose that you've now built into your soul and it's tied into your story, like, Anthony is now literally just before I was talking with you, I was doing our podcast recording and we were being interviewed um, by a reporter for uh, in New Hampshire. Um, but Anthony was also sitting right next to um, a state legislator, Nicole Klein Knight, 
who literally wrote the bill in New Hampshire that allowed Anthony to vote or made it possible for Anthony to vote. And they're both strategizing for his run for office to run for alderman. Like the power of his life to go from, we went, this was in the span of a year we met. Six, like we met on, what was it? February 5th, 2020, before the pandemic. We talked again, it was like July. And when he talked, when he called me, I just happened to be working on my organization vote plan. And I just happened to be on that week working with a gentleman uh, in Iowa who had, who was a formerly incarcerated individual who wrote a letter to the governor to make the law and the help persuade the governor in Ohio, in Iowa to allow former uh, formerly incarcerated individuals to vote. And it was like Anthony called in that moment and it was like, well, you can vote too. And we found it out. And then he felt so empowered and went through the steps. He became a voter. He found another formerly incarcerated individual and they paired him up. They went and voted. Man cast his vote for the first time in his life. He's like 27 years old. Anthony had cast his first vote in 10 years. Um, and they first, and they talked about how they felt like human beings, like citizens, like they belonged. And to have that sort of empowerment and hope because they had now told their stories and they had recontextualized their times instead of seeing themselves as felons or as criminals to see themselves as freemen who had lived a different life. They had made some mistakes. They didn't know the things that they didn't know. And now they know to live better. And they're taking that message and their authenticity and their stories that nobody has because Nobody else has those experiences. Like if you put them on improv stage and they just start doing improv from their place of knowledge, it's going to be different than an improv stage where, where any of us are doing it because of their experiences, just like your experiences. Their experiences are enough out of the mainstream that rarely have we seen those individuals not end up dead or in jail. And instead, we see one of them literally sitting with a state legislator to plan their run for office. We're seeing another one um, working for the Granite State Collaborative that's now, we they're starting the decarceration beat to actually cover the stories of folks that have, that are, um, that are reintegrating back into society. Um, and then we, we, we're going to be soon releasing a, a new podcast that's in partnership with Franklin Pierce University, uh, the Fitzwater Center, and the Granite State News Collaborative, where we're going to be walking people from prison to prosperity, where they're going to be able to go from, if you got out of jail and you have nothing but a phone in this podcast, we're going to help you get yourself set up with transportation, with housing, with shelter, with food, and with how money works now, because if you went to jail 10 years ago, money was a piece of paper. Now it's Zelle, Venmo, Cash App, all these other things that someone that's now walking into our society has to learn how to balance. Our society has become incredibly complex. And part of what we're doing as community organizers is to teach people where society is right now to get them set up so that they don't commit another crime to get into an easier state of life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're like, it's almost like remember Shawshank where the Shawshank Redemption where the gentleman that was that had gotten out before um, Morgan Freeman 
and he was working at the grocery store and he was just, he couldn't hack that freedom and that life. And so it's, it's like what we know is having that hope and being able to replace a, the way that a person uses their time will change their life. Absolutely. So prior to founding uh, Felon to Freeman, you also worked um, uh, founding Vote Plan US involving uh, last year's election, correct? Yes. How did you get involved in that? And I, I, you actually have a couple of people that we also know on your uh, on your staff there. With that, I was looking at your website. We also we former former uh, show guest Frankie Griffin was uh, working with you there too. Oh my God, I love Frankie. Um, yeah, he's great. He was on our uh, Pirates of Dark Water episode last year. <laughs> I didn't know you had any wizards on your staff. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Well, look, you know, this is one of those things. My weird life. Uh, I for a little while was on the Wizards of the Coast site. Um, oh, I am oh, a. Nice. So I am a champion Magic the Gathering player, um, and which makes me a wizard or a magician. And they were in town shooting. Is again, I know what I'm doing. So you see them and they're doing a photo shoot with, you know, folks to redo design their website. And I just make sure that as a black dude and a person of color, I was always in the background of foregrounds of the shots they were shooting. So I ended up almost as the face of diversity for Wizards of the Coast. My friends would like, wait, you do you play magic? And like, yeah, because I angled my way to be in the photo. So it looks like there's more black people playing magic than there actually were which attracted more black people to play magic. Um, but, but again, that's one of those, those magical ways of, if you want to make an impact, you can either sit on the sidelines or notice that this thing is going on. There's a photographer at your normal game of magic. Why is there a photographer? Why don't you go talk to him and find out? Oh, he's actually from Wizards. He's taking website shots. If you get in there, you're going to be on their website. You might not be credited and you might not get paid. But every other kid of color that sees your face is going to say, oh, maybe I should go play that game, too, and learn advanced mathematic and reading comprehension skills. Yeah, I just used to pick the cards up off the table while my buddies were playing and do dramatic readings of the flavor text. And God, it annoyed them. But it really delighted me as a 16 year old girl. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Other than that, I don't know much about it, but I used to watch my guys, my guy friends play it all the time. Well, there's a whole Magic the Gathering. There's a whole large section of female tabletop Magic the Gathering players. There's a lot of women that won't go to the shops and play, but they'll get their decks and play at home. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. I mean, working working in the comics space, I've met tons and tons of people who who play Magic and I've met women who play Magic. I've seen people at conventions because I go to conventions because I work at conventions. So like... I've talked to a lot of people about these things. It's just personally, I never, it was seemed too complicated for me. So my only personal experience with it was pissing off my guy friends in high school by picking the cards off the table in the middle of the game to read the, the flavor text. Mm-hmm. I always put them down exactly where they were supposed to be. I would put them back. Well, it's like sometimes they're playing chess in their mind and they're trying to think moves ahead. And when you pull the card, you just etch a sketch that invisible line they were thinking in their mind. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't unaware of that. Yeah, part of, part, of, <laughs> part of the goal was to annoy them. <laughs> ah, got it. You know, it's it's the other beautiful thing is that this is an example of great design because Richard Garfield designed those cards 
to have something in there that you would be able to give a dramatic reading for that would be cheesy, but it's on purpose because yeah. he realized everybody's going to be able to, somebody's going to look at this and they just going to like the art. Somebody's going to look at this and they're going to want to just win. Somebody's going to look at this and they just want to play games and talk to their friends. Magic the Gathering was meant to be a game that you played in between games of Dungeons and Dragons. And he designed it enough to say, you know what? I don't care what the wizard that shows up that sits at my table. If they sit down, there might be something in there for them. Yeah. So, sorry, we got sidetracked because we started talking about Frankie Griffin and that's how we started talking about magic. But uh... Oh yeah, but, uh, but I was about to seek that back into the, that's the same way that we do that in community organizing. Um, in that you build a world where multiple people with different interests can all come together around one single goal. And working with Frankie Get Griffin and Vote Plan, the opportunity was to how do we make a difference in the 2020 elections while um, having to stay inside for the pandemic? Um, one of the things that I learned in 2010 was about this thing called a vote plan, where you walk someone step by step over the phone through the process of their election day voting plan. You ask people about what is their transportation? Do they have childcare? Are they going before or after work? What you're doing is you're verbally helping them mentally paint a picture of a day that they normally don't have. Election day is once every two to four years. And that person has to bend their schedule and their lives around it. This really inconvenient and odd day to make things happen, to go vote and have their piece of the American story told. And what we learned is by helping people do that, helping people formalize those conversations, you actually increase their likelihood to go vote, um, especially if they were younger or if they were on the fence, because people just, people, younger people let think their lives are more up to chance. You know, they don't realize that the burrito they ate last night is the reason why they feel terrible the next day. Some do. Oh, some no, don't. I normally know. See, you're self-aware. Some don't. Um, and you're Look, like, I'm aware of the crimes I've committed. <laughs> but having that vote plan made them actually think that through. Um, and it made people it, it made people actually um get involved and engaged because that's my goal is to find different ways to say, what is it that you want to do in this world? How do you want to represent yourself? If you were, you know, if Beth or Brandon, if you were sitting on an Island, you had all the money in the world. You did one of those things where um, you took a hundred pages and they had all the right words on them and you wrote your future. And someone said, here's a check you get to play this role for the rest of your life. You know, like Ted Danson, you can be an alcoholic for the rest of your life. If you want to do that, Ted, you'll be at a bar. You help somebody find what that is and enunciate that to you and then find out how them doing their favorite thing furthers the goal that you set. So I had people that would, I hate making phone calls. I teach them how to cook or I ask them to come bring food to a phone bank. In this case, this summer, needing digital communication, Frankie was, oh my God, a godsend. Um, in helping with streamathons and helping with podcasts and thinking uh, through how we actually can communicate with people, um, looking at Twitch and looking at the ways that our communication is changing. What you're starting to see is our political world is 
incorporating all the stuff we're doing in our comedy world, you'll see like there were already a re- a lot of Zoom fundraising comedy shows. Um, and you're going to see more of that. And so folks that have these skills like a Frankie, if they want to, can translate right over into this next world because every political candidate is going to have a podcast or several of them. Every political candidate is now going to be doing some sort of digital meetings and, and digital town halls. And so people that know how to help people do those better are going to be in demand. You just have to know that that's the next wave and you have to know how to intellectually meet the politicians where they are to walk them where they need to be. So vote plan was that was my ability to get people from all different parts of my life together to help feed into this collective action of getting people to make plans to vote. That's that's great. And and so you guys had good success last year or I, I'm how do you I'm not sure if there's like a metric to measure that. <laughs> yeah, for real. Especially without like in-person events, it's kind of like. Well, what you do is you measure like you just find the things that you for me, the, the biggest the biggest success of this was finding the people that I met. We did a video series um, with a fellow Northwestern graduate, a talented filmmaker, an award winning filmmaker, uh, Kincaid Walker, um, called the Morning After Series, where people who didn't vote in 2016 talk about the morning after when they found out Donald Trump was president. Um, And then they made commitments to what they would do this year. And so having each of those folks and then those messages that that cascaded out, I know that we made thousands of impressions. I know that uh, I know literally firsthand two formerly incarcerated individuals in New Hampshire who voted, who wouldn't have voted had this not existed. Um, I did corporate shows with uh, like Postmates and taught their um, Postmates fleet how to have um, how to have conversations about elections without talking politics Um, and then walking them all through how to make vote plans and how to talk with their community members about how to make vote plans. Um, And in the end, what I ended up doing was supplementing this movement that started out from above where other people started with the vote plan movement as well. Um, You know, like, uh, who is it? Like um, the, the guys that make the, 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 the guys that make the, the former presidential speech writers that make that podcast, uh, Pod Save America, they did a vote plan. Yeah, they, they had a similar they had a similar thing. But it's all because we all we all read from the same comic book. Yeah. And it's also when it comes to things like that, like there's no such thing as, quote unquote, competition. The more people that can get reached, the better. <laughs> like because I'm getting folks that like the fact of the matter is the community engagement we're talking about with with felon to Freeman, but like vote plan. Sometimes people will listen to messengers or communicators that look closer to them. Look, I like Pod Save America just fine, but I can absolutely understand taking a look at those three and being like, I don't, who are you? Shut up. Mm-hmm. Shut up, white boys. Please stop talking. You look like every other dude on my internet. I get it. I can see that. Yeah. And, and so uh, there it was, it allowed me to reach out to different communities. Um, we did, we did some work with, um, vote health, where uh, I shot a video with a friend of mine, Dr. Alice Chin, uh, to teach Florida voters how to properly mark their ballots. Um, you know, nonpartisan, but this is how you mark them, seal them, and turn them in. Just things like that, voter education to 
to get people uh, out there. But a lot of what we did in vote plan was a was basically at the edges of pushing this greater movement that ended up happening. Um, and in the end, the greatest thing to come out of it was meeting the guys that I, I built fell into Freeman with um, because the lasting impact of what we're doing uh, with actually working with the decarcerated community to do the social changes to decarcerate our country mm -hmm. rather than coming in with a solution and saying, this is how we do it. I'm a person that went to a university and this is what my university study is. I'm like, no, I just sat down with a couple of the guys that just got out and now we're talking with them and saying, what do you need? They said, well, you know, the thing to help me was a cell phone and being able to have that and have the pre-programmed numbers when I walked out the door and having support. Okay. How can we scale that? And having worked at Airbnb and nextdoor.com, I can look at how to scale these solutions that the actual people who've gone through the problem are saying is the solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. That's awesome. You guys are doing great work because, yeah, we uh, we over incarcerate and then do shit for people when they get out. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. We have more people in the U.S prison system like currently than russia ever had in like a gulag during the cold war like that is the levels of incarceration we talk about when we talk about incarceration in the u.s it's unreal the things that we send people to jail for and the things that we disproportionately send the wrong people and people of color to jail for mm -hmm. it's 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 a broken system and you guys are doing doing the work putting putting your money where your mouth is so uh that's rad that's rad yeah. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, and and like, look, thank you for having me on because the fact that there there may be some listener out there and they're going to say they're going to hear some of this and maybe they heard me doing uh my Barack Obama impersonation, whatever it is. If it gets them to show up uh to the Fallen the Freeman podcast. And they they go and and they they listen to what we're doing and and they hear those stories. And they share it with somebody that's in their life that has had some problems and that person goes out there and uh, gets themselves a job and starts talking a little bit better to their kids and starts to join the PTA and they make their community a little bit better. And that one person, that one voice on that podcast changed that one person and that one person changed a room and that run room contain change a city. And that city can change a state and that state can change a nation. So that one voice on a podcast can change a nation. And if you can change the right nation, you can change the world. And that's community organizing, baby. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Marquise, and telling us about your story and your organizations. If somebody wanted to get involved with Felon to Freeman, listen to the podcast, uh, help you guys out, how could they do that? They can drop in on felontofreeman.org. They can follow us on all of the social meds at felontofreeman. Uh, I believe, yeah, felontofreeman. And if they want to find me, uh, all of my social media now points to uh, Yogi Marquis, Y-O-G-I-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. Same thing if you want to drop me a cash app or Venmo, Yogi Marquis.
Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we gotta we gotta cycle through our plugs real fast here at the end. But is there anything else that you would like to uh, put out there? Tell people to go check out anything anything at all you'd like to plug, other than what we just discussed. Oh yeah, I also produce the Knocking Down Walls podcast with host P. L. Brown. If you want to learn about the power of words that undergird our society, by a man whose voice sounds exactly like James Earl Jones, then check out the Knocking Down Walls podcast by P.L. Brown. I think I do. I think I do want to hear that. Go check out the one on Vision. That one is... I love that one. I love Paul Bettany. He was so good in those movies. (laughs) Stupid. Uh, That that sounds great. Um, Yeah, if you want to find more of my nonsense, uh, I'm at Hell Yes Brandon on all of the uh, hell sites we live our lives on these days. Um, My bands, Ink Blot and Inappropriate Things, are both out and about. We're hopefully maybe starting to do shows uh, by the time this drops, but I'm not in the future, so I don't know if we actually have any, but hopefully we will. Um, And we're working on new material with both of those groups. Hope to be, like, recording some stuff soon. Um, I'm plugging along on my my solo stuff but i got a couple tracks you can check out uh at brandonbeck.bandcamp.com uh yeah i think that's i think that's maybe it because like i don't know if there might be tantrum shows again soon who knows uh the world is weird uh not not by the time this is out the theater is certainly not open uh no 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 so um but yeah beth what about you yeah for me uh Per usual, you can find me everywhere at uh, at B scores, B-E-E-S-C-O-R-E-S with an underscore at the end. Um, Tomorrow is when the tomorrow on day of listening, not on day of recording. Uh, But the day this comes out tomorrow is another episode of Chaotic Roll uh, at 8 p.m. on the Pack Theater Twitch channel. Um, It's a really cool uh, mashup of improv and D&D where we just throw some some random new characters together and uh they get thrown into a dungeon together and they have you know as much time as the show is over to fight their way out it's a super fun game um we do it the first and third tuesday of every month on the pack theater twitch uh come check it out i am you will not see me except for in the intro video at the beginning but i'm one of the producers my co-producer whitney is our fabulous dungeon master um come check it out uh, other than that, you can follow the podcast online by following us on Twitter at, at IntuitPod and on Instagram at hashtag IntuitPod. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook if you get any mileage out of that. Thank you, as always, to Kalen West and Tiny Stills for the use of our theme song. Starting over is a lot like giving up off the album Falling is Like Flying. And thank you to Indiesaurus for having us on the network. You can check them out at Indiesaurus.com and uh, check out all their great shows. Join our Discord. Come hang out with us online. Maybe we can all change the world. That was amazing. You killed that. I just want to say high five. I know how hard that is. Thank you. I do it every week, so <laughs> I have to just remember it. Yeah, she crushes that part. Yeah, I'm like, that's why That's why I do improv, because, man, I hate memorizing. Same. Uh, Same. I. It's only experiential. If you listen to earlier episodes, like, it's not very good. It's entirely experiential. Even when I used to act, I could never memorize lines. I never knew the lines until we actually, like, started running the show over and over again. I I can't memorize things. Not at all. (laughs) I can't even remember the lyrics to my own songs. Yeah. 
I had a I, like one of the reasons why I got so good at improv is because all right, so it, at sixteen, um, I was competing in original comedy. I had written a whole routine where I I'm not gonna lie, I bit off of one of the BET specials, but I just did all different impersonations where I did Allison or um, was it Dorothy? But I did like Susan Powder, Arnold Schwarzenegger. All these other different voices, you know. I did um, Mrs. Doubtfire because, again, it was I was eight. It was you know ninety six or ninety four. Sure. Um, and oh yeah, it, that's exactly. And so this girl that I liked, Jennifer, sat in. It was like the state quarterfinals. She sat in the front row. I wasn't expecting her there, and it was like that moment where you're about to live your dream. If you're the funniest guy in the moment. And the cute girl that you like shows up and like, I froze. Oh no. And like for, you know, you have that moment and I completely forgot my entire routine, probably for about seven seconds, probably less than that, but I don't know. They weren't taping it back then. But seven seconds on stage feels like an eternity. <laughs> oh yeah. And then I had to find it once I've got into it. It's like, did it, once you get the, the rhythm back into you, it's like, okay. Then I was like, I'm never putting myself in this position ever again. It's like, with the exception of uh, memorizing Dr. King's I Have a Dream and like some speeches where folks have been like, look, you're doing 37,500 people. You, we going to know exactly what you're going to say before you do that. Yeah. You're not going to, yeah. there's, there's nothing you're improvising in front of the president of the United States of America on his microphone. Not happening at <laughs> all. <fair. laughs> But, you know, you kill it. And then afterwards, Jamie Foxx says, man, I need to go get a selfie with you. Nice. I do. I do love the idea of uh, Barack Obama coming on stage and asking for a suggestion of anything at all. Uh, let, let me say, uh, uh, I think. Uh, no, no, not not you. from Not from Rush. Uh, somebody somebody say something. Uh, oh, I, I like it. Well, think about it. There's a bunch of there's a chunk of time that Barack Obama was at Occidental College. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Barack in his twenties was Roman LA. You know he was getting into like look, this was six foot two, still burial, probably with a baby fro. Yeah. You know he was getting into some stuff. He probably did an open mic. Oh god, yeah. Oh yeah. He was probably hey, yeah, this is uh this is burial. Uh I just wanna uh go up there and you you know how uh Sometimes black people are like this and and then white people are like this and then sometimes they're just me. <laughs> well, what else did I have? Hmm, what else did it's, I have? You know what though? It's nice that we said so many nice things about improv in this one because in our episode 2 weeks ago on Kids in the Hole, we dunked on it real hard. <laughs> so hard. Oh, why'd you dunk on improv? I mean, in a very deserving way. We oh, were yeah. mostly dunking on it, it was more about we were talking about the um we were talking about the idea of sometimes when you do an improv set and then you come off and you were in a fugue state and you come off and you're just like, what did any of us just say? What was the suggestion? How did we get to birds? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah. the sheer panic of having to like live in the moment and then not commit your improv set to memory. That's mm-hmm. what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the, the beautiful and hard thing about improv, because uh, now that I've done enough studying of different types of people, different worlds. Improvisers are like the theater kids with low self-esteem. 
No, they are the theater kids. With uh, hi, I grew up in theater. Let me tell you some things. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I love you all dearly, but yes, they're like they are not only as beautiful as the theater kids, but they're as smart as the writers. Yeah, because they're writing and acting at the same time, which the actors can't do and the writers can't act, but improvisers do both. Yeah, they're the theater kids that didn't want to become sketch writers. Mm-hmm. But then somehow, through some luck or fate, they end up doing this thing that they love to do, but part of them feel guilty about it. So improvisers are also the worst at promoting themselves and their work. Yup. Um, yeah, because they feel like, oh, if I talk about me, then I feel so selfish. It's like, no, dude, you need asses in the seats. That's your job. As a, as a job as your comedian is your job as a comedian is not to be the funniest guy in the room is to put asses in seats and sell beer. And when I understood that I got politics and everything else. Once you understand your job as a politician is to collect donations and then to, uh, to share the influence uh, that you have with the different positions of power that you can sway. Your job isn't to collect the donations. That's just a function of it. If you can do your job without collecting donations, but that's all you're doing is looking at the mechanisms of power and then using those to build the world as you see it. Because all of this, someone created at some point, a bunch of white dudes in a room who owned slaves wrote down on uh, with a quill and on a piece of paper and said, these are the rules. This is how America is going to roll out. Everybody fall in line for the next few hundred years. But if anybody, if someone could sit there and write that down, then everything else that someone writes down, the only thing that makes it more valid or less valid is the conviction behind it. Mm-hmm. And once you see that, you can create your own reality as you live. I mean, I do that every single day. I wake up and I know that, look, I get to figure out what magical world I want to call forth. Today, I got to hang out with you two and and be in your world and hopefully get you guys into community organizing. And then maybe somebody that's listening to this show will like and subscribe to this show and then say, hey, I want to check out that Felina Freeman show. And hey, I want to check out what's going on with Barack Obama and think a little bit more deeply about their place in the world. And if they learn that they too can go and show up and change the world by just showing up, because that's all I did. I was a regular guy that showed up. You're a regular guy that shows up every day and just shows up and says, what's the best thing I can do with my time? Eventually, you'll find that spot where the world says, this is your opportunity to bend that arc of the moral universe, Haas. If you're ready, go do it. All right, y'all. Get out there and show up. Yeah. And that being said. Podcast over. <laughs>